be seated. <clears throat> Thank you, band, choir, and praise team. <clears throat> Continuing on in this sermon series that we started a couple of weeks ago, Crossroads. We're aiming to follow a biblical path through some of the difficult issues of today. There are many things in our culture and our society that uh, demand our attention and demand a response, demand a biblical response. Part of the problem that we have in the church today is that often we don't give what is a, a thorough, a sound biblical response to many of the things that we see in our culture. And so we want to do that. We want to be able to do that. Now, let me, let me make sure that I clarify for you what we're talking about here. Now, the first couple of weeks, we kind of laid a foundation. In fact, the very first week, we talked about the foundation of our beliefs, the foundation of who we are, the foundation of the church. And yes, it is Jesus Christ, but it's the word of God that reveals Jesus. Christ to us. What we know about Jesus Christ, we have learned through his word. And if we think we know something about Jesus that we didn't learn in his word, we had better filter it through the word of God and make sure that it actually fits because there are things that people think about Jesus, that they say about Jesus that don't fit with the word of God. And if what I think about Jesus doesn't fit with the word of God, I know where the problem lies. The problem lies with me, not with the word. God's revealed revelation is infallible truth without any mixture of error, and it's our foundation. Now, from that foundation, last week we talked about this tripod of our response, how we're supposed to respond. We're supposed to respond with humility, understanding that we're all created in the image of God. We don't have all the answers, but God does have the answers in his word, and understanding that that person who may believe differently than I do, they are created in the image of God, in the likeness of God, just as I am. They are a being made in the imago Dei, in the image of God, just like me. They are a being that is a rational being. They have the capacity for abstract thought. They're an eternal being. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save that person who believes radically different, who may not believe anything at all. He died to save that person. And they are also an emotional being, just like I am an emotional being, just like the Lord is an emotional being. We talked about that, that humility has got to be a foundation. Civility has got to be the response, the platform through which we respond. Because when we respond in civility, understanding that we have been called to task, we have been called to act in a certain way, not only to those inside the church, but those outside the church, then our tone and our manner in what we say and how we say it radically changes. So we've got to respond with humility, civility, but also understanding that reconciliation is the aim. That's the goal, trying to draw people back into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, today we're going to talk about biblical marriage and family. This topic is tied in closely with another topic that we're going to look at next week, biblical sexuality and gender. And... Um, let me say, today I'm going to be speaking on this topic, biblical marriage and family. Now, next week, uh, I'm not going to be the one who's preaching. I, I gave Stafford the opportunity to preach on any one of these topics that he would like to. And uh, he said that he really had an interest in preaching on biblical sexuality. But then he also said, and I'm putting on the spot, uh, he said, um, I think that that really ought to come from you. I think that on that topic, that really ought to come from you. And I said, no. That's the one that you feel like you want to speak on. That's the one I want you to speak on. And here's why. Because if you are dependent upon me being the one preaching to you, then the focus is on the wrong thing. 
We're not looking for Pastor Rob's response to these issues. We are looking for a biblical response to these issues. And as Stafford preaches next Sunday on that topic, a topic which he's already talked about with our teenagers before and done a great deal of research on, I know that he's going to do a fantastic job on that specific topic. And he is speaking on behalf of the Lord to you through God's word, whether it was me or Stafford or J.D. or anybody else who would stand and preach on that topic. It's not my response. It's not Stafford's response. It's not the church's response. It's a biblical response, and that's what we're looking for. We want to find a biblical path to respond to these issues in our culture and society. Now, talking about biblical marriage and family, let me say today, let me just say at the very beginning of this message, this message is not intended to condemn in any way. It is not a message that's intended to single out somebody in any kind of way, shape, form, or fashion. What this message is intended for is to give you a foundation from Scripture of what biblical marriage and family is supposed to be. Now, because of that, there are some people who may be convicted, but the intention is not to shame that popular word word that's in our culture today. It's not to shame anyone. It's simply to point out this is what the Bible says, knowing this is our foundation, knowing this is where we need to begin from. And from here, this is how we need to respond to our culture. And so really, this is information for you to be able to share when the conversation comes up with somebody else to explain, this is why I believe what I believe. Because God's word says this in regard to biblical marriage and family. So that's the point that we're launching from today. Now, um, as we talk about this topic, if you were to do any kind of research online or in literature, in, in books, things that are written, you would find that there is a whole broad spectrum that is out there today that's developed in the last several years, in the last few years, about the topic of biblical marriage and family. And there are many out there today that say that it is impossible to get a picture of what biblical marriage and family is supposed to look like. Because when you look in Scripture, you come across all different kinds of things. And here are just a few examples of what you come across in Scripture. When you look in Scripture, we see arranged marriages. We see forced marriages. There are captives who seize wives, and they become their wives as they are seized. We see in the Old Testament instances where Women are raped, and they are forced to become the spouse of that man who raped them. Well, is that really then outlining a biblical idea of what marriage ought to be? Well, we wouldn't say that. Other people point to passages in Scripture, and they'll say, well, look, King David had multiple wives. And if he was a man after God's own heart, how can we say then today that marriage is between one man, one woman? Because he had multiple wives. King Solomon had a lot more than his dad did. We also have this issue in Old Testament scripture about concubines. Well, when they talk about concubines, they mention them in one passage as being the wife of someone and then being the concubine of somebody. So there are all kinds of different things there related to marriage in scripture. Also, in regard to family, we see that in families, families would sell each other into slavery, Joseph and his family. Families would sacrifice their children in the fire to the god Molech. 
There were mixed and multiple families. You've got this husband married to this wife and all of these kids, and you got the same husband married to this wife and all these kids, and then married to this wife and all these kids, and trying to stir all these families together. Well, is that an example of what biblical family is supposed to look like? We also see instances in Scripture of parental favor that takes place. Of course, one of those being... Isaac and Rebekah, and then you've got Jacob and Esau, and Jacob being the one that Rebekah favored, and Esau being the one that Isaac favored, and that carried on through generations so that Jacob later favors one of his sons, Joseph, and gives him a coat of many colors, and Benjamin, the son of that one wife that he did love as opposed to the wife that he didn't love as much, and we have all kinds of issues like this through Scripture. So how can we possibly find a biblical definition of marriage and family. How could we hope to? In fact, I wanted to, um, I wanted to share with you just an excerpt from an article. Now, trying to leave till next week the topic of biblical sexuality, biblical sexuality and all that's related to that, whether it's homosexuality, heterosexual sex outside of marriage, and also um, celibacy, but also transgenderism, gender issues, those things, trying to leave that till next week. But I wanted to read to you a little excerpt, because this is a question that comes up sometimes in regard to this topic, in regard to biblical sexuality and marriage and family. How can anybody who is a Christian not believe this? How can anybody who's a Christian not believe, and then they'll make their statement. And usually it's something radically different than what we believe. Well, I want to give you an example of how in Scripture, some people pull portions of Scripture to try to prove their point. And and this is an article that's written by, um, and, and I'm not really trying to single this person out, but they posted it online, and so I feel like I have a perfect right to read it to you, because you could look it up. This is from... A pastor, his name is Brady Witten. He's a United Methodist Church pastor. He wrote this on November 29, 2018. He wrote this as a response to the special session of the General Conference of the United Methodist Church that was coming in February of this past year in 2019. He wrote this as the United Methodist Church was taking up the issue of allowing gay marriage in their church. And this is what he wrote. Let me let me share with you what he wrote. He said, the first thing we need to be honest about, this isn't the whole thing, but he says, the first thing we need to be honest about is the Bible has no one clear definition of marriage. Kind of what we're talking about here. For example, the practice of polygamy was common in the Hebrew scriptures. King David, a man after God's own heart, had as many as eight wives, and other prominent Hebrew figures also had multiple wives pointing to the fact that in Scripture, there are all kinds of different places where it talks about polygamy, talks about other things related to marriage, so there's no one biblical definition of marriage. Now, here's where it goes off the rails. He says, later on, the Bible says that I am, as a Christian, part of the church, and the church is the bride of Christ. Tracking? You agree? As a Christian, you're part of the church, and the church is the bride of Christ. Okay? He says, I'm a man. Brady Whitten, he's a man. I'm a man married to Jesus. 
Do you see where this issue is headed? He said, I am the bride of Christ. I'm married to Jesus Christ. Obviously, God didn't have a problem with a man being married to a man. So gay marriage must be acceptable. He even says, in regard to those passages that prohibit same-gender sexual acts found in a few texts, says the Bible does not promote one clear sexual ethic. It just says that we're supposed to be faithful, have mutual respect, and to love the one that we're committed to. Now, you may think, well, that's just crazy. There's a biblical definition of marriage, according to Brady Whitten. So how do we possibly find one? Well, I have a theory, and this is my postulation. This is my specific um, background and where I come from. And let me just say, I know that you may find different people across all kinds of different biblical spectrums who would say something different. I'm sharing with you, and I think I can defend it absolutely, fully, wholeheartedly, specifically. I think that there is one biblical definition of marriage and family. And that biblical definition of marriage is not found in regard to King David, and it's not found in regard to King Solomon. It's not found in the New Testament except to where Jesus refers to it. It's not found anywhere except in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, before the fall of mankind, before the world ever experienced sin, before sin ever entered into the world, God gave us the perfect picture of what marriage was supposed to be like before all of these other issues that came up in Scripture. Forced marriages, arranged marriages, they are a perversion of what God had intended in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so all of those things that people try to extrapolate later on and say, hey, you know, it's okay to have arranged marriages. It's okay for your 14-year-old to marry an 18-year-old if you parents give approval. It's okay for that because, look, it happened in Scripture. It's just patently wrong. There is only one place we can find a true biblical picture, a biblical definition of marriage, and that's found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Because it's before the fall and it's what God intended when he made this perfect world. It's no coincidence. It's no coincidence that when Jesus refers to marriage in Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10, he refers to this passage of scripture, not to any other. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, here's what it says. And the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every other beast of the field, every bird of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, cattle to birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, 
A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. I believe it is from this passage that we find the true biblical definition of marriage. And here it is. We include this in our core beliefs here at New Bridge. This is also an excerpt that is, sounds very similar to what you find in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Marriage is a lifelong, exclusive relationship between one man and one woman. The husband and wife are of equal worth before God since both are created in God's image. Scripture excludes any possibility of gay marriage as being acceptable before God. That's a biblical definition of marriage. And I think it is the only true biblical definition of marriage because it's the only definition that points back to the time before there was actually sin that entered the world, before the fall of mankind. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27 reference this. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 reference this. And then also Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 27 talk about how this had been perverted in the world in Rome. Now, when we look at this biblical definition, there are a couple of things that stand out in regard to this biblical definition of marriage. And here are a few things that ought to stand out to us, a few key points. First of all, this definition says that it's a lifelong, that it is a lifelong relationship between husband and wife. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, you can look these up if you want, but it's probably better to write them down because I'll read portions of them to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39 says, A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if he dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes in the Lord. That this is a lifelong relationship, that as long as Anne is alive, I am her husband. As long as I'm alive, she is my wife. That is a lifelong relationship. That's the way that God intended it. Now, why is this something we point to out of the New Testament when I just said that the definition came from the Old Testament? Because this definition of marriage is included in Genesis chapter 2, but then later passages talk about what it should be like, what it points back to that original definition of marriage and how it had been perverted. It's supposed to be a lifelong relationship. And this is part of what Jesus was responding to among the Pharisees when the Pharisees came and said, hey, in the law it says that we have permission to divorce our wives. And Jesus said, Moses wrote that down because your heart was so hard. He wrote down the process by which a man could divorce his wife because you have forgotten what the intention was. Man and wife together, one flesh, what God has brought together, let no man tear apart. It's a lifelong relationship. Secondly, out of this definition, something to draw our attention to. It's exclusive. In Malachi chapter 2, Old Testament, speaking about how this intention had been perverted. In Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, let me read a little bit of that. It says, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you 
be faithless to the wife, not wives, to the wife of your youth. Again, pointing back to this original intention, Genesis chapter 2, one man, one woman for a lifetime, exclusive that it is supposed to be this man, that woman together for a lifetime. He said, you haven't been faithful to your wife. It's time to start being faithful to your, not wives, plural, but your wife. That was the intention, the original intention of God. A couple other key points here out of this passage. Supposed to be one man, one woman. Genesis chapter 2, where we just read, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They're created in his image, male and female alike. Husband and wife, both together they are created in his image, male and female. Genesis 1:27 says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God who created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, some have questioned in the past and said, well, why are there two creation accounts? You've got one in Genesis chapter 1. You've got one in Genesis chapter 2. This sounds different than that one there. In Genesis chapter 1, it's the 10,000-foot view. In Genesis chapter 2, it's the 10-foot view. In Genesis chapter 1, it says God created, and God created man, and woman, he created him in his image. There they are. Both of them created in his, in his image. In Genesis chapter 2, it gives the specifics of how man and woman were created together for each other. But they were created in his image, male and female alike, so that they have equal worth before God. One other thing about this definition that we need to make sure that we grasp fully. It's a heterosexual relationship. It says over in Romans chapter 1. Parts of verses 23 through 27 say, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they exchanged the natural relationship and burned for same-sex relationships, committing what is shameful. Now, those who would want to defend or argue, um, saying that gay marriage is acceptable before God, you have to eliminate a lot of scripture. You have to eliminate some very pointed messages in scripture. You have to eliminate these circumstances in scripture that say it's between one man, one woman, and it's for a lifetime, and it's exclusive. Now, tied into this, when we talk about biblical marriage, when we talk about biblical sexuality, we need to understand that God treats the sexual relationship between a man and a woman as one of the most sacred acts that takes place on the face of the earth. And he has intended that this happen inside of marriage only. It is the only acceptable place for this expression to take place. And it is heterosexual as described in Scripture. There is no other definition that fits according to Scripture, regardless of how some people want to take and twist Scripture. Yes, I am a man, and yes, I am the bride of Christ, but that is a figurative image, not a literal license to practice something that God didn't intend from the very beginning. Now, that's the definition of biblical marriage. We also want to make sure that we talk about biblical family, too. We can't have a complete definition of the literal nuclear family without first understanding the biblical definition of marriage. 
So that's where we begin talking about biblical marriage, but biblical family is equally important. Here's what we have as part of our definition of biblical family in our 10 core beliefs. God has ordained the family as the foundational institution of human society. It's composed of persons related to one another by marriage, blood, or adoption. That's part of our core statement. We include that in our core statements, 10 core beliefs here at Newbridge. When we talk about the family. He's ordained the family as the foundational institution of human society. It's composed of persons related to one another by marriage, blood, or adoption. Now, there's some key points to this one as well. It's the foundational institution. It's the institution through which God intends to work. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, And these words I command you today, they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's the foundation. It's the foundation. The home is the foundation. The family is the foundation by which all of these things take place. It says that in regard to this biblical family, that biblical family is related to and tied around marriage as well. Again, pointing back to that passage in Genesis chapter 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, some have read that passage before and they balance that against what Jesus says. And Jesus says, you shall honor your father and mother that the days may go long with you. He quotes that that Old Testament passage that Moses gave, one of those Ten Commandments, thou shalt honor thy father and mother. And Jesus quotes that passage. Well, if I am leaving my mom and dad and I am forming my own family, how then do I continue to honor my mom and dad? There comes a point in time in every family relationship where mom, where dad, have to take a back seat to that child's spouse. One of the issues that we see growing in our culture today is that parents want to continue to be involved in the marriage relationship of their married child. But that's not the way that God intended it. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, not dishonoring them, not being there, not, not, not saying, I, I absolve myself from caring for you, but I now have to focus on my wife. My wife becomes the most important thing in this entire world. My husband becomes the most important thing in this entire world. Listen, if you are entering into this marriage relationship or newly entered into your marriage relationship, I know you love your mom and dad. I know that you care for them. I hope that you do at least. I know that you want to honor them, but your wife is the most important person in the world. Your husband is the most important person in the world. They are one flesh with you. Your parents are not. And so the family is defined as the foundational institution, and it begins with the marriage of the man and the woman and their children. And from there, as that family grows, it grows by birth. In John chapter 16, verse 21, it says, When a woman is giving birth, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. <laughs> Right. For that joy that a human being has been born into the world. Psalm 127.4 says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who's, who fills his quiver with them. 
It's a foundational institution beginning with marriage and then the birth of children, but also the adoption of children into that family. Esther chapter 2, verses 5 and 7 talks about that, and it says in the citadel there was a Jew named Mordecai, and he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. So when we talk about marriage and we talk about family, we've got to understand the definition first of all. When we talk about marriage, well, marriage is defined as a lifelong exclusive relationship between one man, one woman, the husband and wife are of equal worth before God since both are created in God's image. Scripture excludes any possibility of gay marriage as acceptable before God. The family is defined as a foundational institution of human society. It's composed of persons related to one another by marriage, blood, or adoption. Now, what do we do with these? With what time I have, I want to talk to you about the purpose of marriage and the purpose of family and the roles related to that. Now, I'm going to skim a little bit because I want to make sure that I get down to the roles in the family, the purpose of marriage. This is pulled from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, and Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Just a few things. Why do we have marriage? Why, why, is, why is marriage one of these things that God blesses us with? Well, there are four things, and Kaylee, just go ahead and run all four of them for me so that they're all up on the screen. Here are the four things. Companionship, strength, service, and protection. That's what these two passages of Scripture, Genesis chapter 2 and Ecclesiastes chapter 4, say. Companionship. God said it's not good for him to be alone. Ecclesiastes says two together can be kept warm. There's companionship, the warmth physically, the warmth emotionally. That's the intention of marriage. Marriage is intended to be that companion relationship above all others supposed to provide strength. Ecclesiastes says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. That is me, my wife, and Jesus Christ in our home. That threefold cord is not quickly broken. God said in Genesis chapter 2, I'm providing a helper for him. Together they will be able to achieve. God also said with this marriage I intend them to serve. They have a task together. They're joined. There's a reward for their labor. Yes, they have work to do as a husband and wife. And one of the things that this marriage is going to do is it's going to provide protection for them. They are one flesh. They are two together. They can withstand the trial that comes. That's the purpose of marriage. Now, I know I'm skimming a little bit, but your small groups will have the opportunity to talk about this if you'd like to join in one of the small groups as we have more discussion about this. The purpose of marriage. Also, the purpose of family. And again, Kaylee, just run all four of these up there real quick for me. Purpose of family, pulled from these passages of Scripture. What is family supposed to do? Well, you know, the primary responsibility in family is that you, mom, you, dad, me, dad, 
and mom, we're supposed to be teaching scripture to our children. We're not supposed to be relying solely upon their Sunday school teachers, their pastors, their, their school teachers, if we send them to a school where they actually are allowed to open their Bible. It's not, it's not teacher's responsibility. It's really not pastor's responsibility. It's not youth minister's responsibility. It's not Sunday school teacher's responsibility. The Bible outlines that it's mom and dad. It's our responsibility to teach our children. And it's our responsibility to be the ones to share the gospel with our children. In Acts chapter 16, it says, it says verse 33 through 34, it's 33 through verse 34. That's a misprint on my part. Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas are in jail and the jailer comes in and all the doors are thrown open and they're just in there and they've been singing and praising God and he thinks that everybody's escaped from the jail and he's getting ready to kill himself and Paul says, hey, wait, we're all right here. Nobody's left. And he comes in and he falls down in front of me. He says, what must I do to be saved? And then he takes Paul and Silas home and it says in that passage, he and his household were saved. It's the responsibility of the family, ultimately, to be able to share the gospel. What's the purpose of family? Discipling the generations. Not just your children, but your children's children, your children's children's children. That's the way Scripture describes this process, that we disciple those who come to faith and that we provide for needs. 1 Timothy chapter 5 says, the one who doesn't care for members of his own household, the one in the church who doesn't care for members of his own household, (laughs) says, let them be called anathema. We're supposed to be providing for needs within our family as well. What's the purpose of family? Now, so we're skimming a little bit there because I want to make sure that we get to this last one. What's the roles of a family? Let's talk a little specifically about this. In the family, Scripture tells us that in order to get back to this place, we need to be practicing mutual sacrifice and submission within the family. This comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through chapter 6, verse 4. Now, I want you to, if you have a Bible here with you and you're not just following along your phone, your phone, it may have it, but if you flip open in your passage in Ephesians chapter 5 to uh, verse 21, many of you will notice in most every major translation, they, they will add headers for sections and they'll say, this section is about this and this section that follows is about this. You'll notice that there's a little header that follows verse 21. I always think that those commentators who added that later, that they put it in the wrong place. Now, maybe that's a little arrogant on my part, but I think that you can't miss what's being said here. In verse 21, it uses the word submission. In verse 22 and 23, it uses the word submission. How do we draw a line between these two and say, well, it's talking about one thing here but um, and it's aimed at this, but then when we get down here in the family, it's really just aimed about the wives. It's aimed at the wives. The wives, you're supposed to submit. Well, then why did it mention that we are supposed to submit to one another in verse 21? I think that's actually where we need to begin. We need to begin to practice the mutual sacrifice and mutual submission in the family if our family relationships, if our marriage relationships are going to be what God intended them to be. 
And this is part of what the Holy Spirit through Paul is trying to remind the church about. It's supposed to be one man, one woman of equal worth before God. In the family, here's part of the roles as described in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 21 says, Submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Yes, wives, there it is. It is right in front of you. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Make sacrifices for this person who is the most important person in your life. Don't just sacrifice things for your kids. You've got to sacrifice things for your spouse. Now, before we think, as we read that, "Mm, I can't wait to share that with my wife. We've got to understand that we're called to mutual submission. Submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. We're called to mutual sacrifice. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, here's how you practice sacrifice in your family. Here's how you practice this idea of mutual submission, submitting to one another. How you practice sacrifice in your family. Husbands, you are to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself completely away for her. He sacrificed all that he was for her. Jesus laid down his priestly garment. He laid down his crown. He left his spot in heaven at the Father's hand, and he came in the form of a helpless little baby, and he lived and he died on the cross, buying back his bride who was sold into sin, who was sold into slavery, who was going to die so that he might redeem her and present her before the Father in heaven as a bride undefiled. That's what God calls you husbands to do. That's what he calls me to do. I am to mutually sacrifice and submit. My submission looks different than my wife's submission. Her submission looks different than my submission, but we're supposed to submit to each other, submitting to one another. And oh, by the way, parents, it doesn't stop there. Wife, husband, it continues on and says that We're supposed to sacrifice for our children. Our children are supposed to sacrifice for us. Children, you're supposed to submit yourselves to your parents this way. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and you may live on the earth my role in the family to give all I have to give everything that I am to spend it all for my wife and my children what's her role to spend it all for me and our children What's their role? To spend it all for mom and dad. For mom and dad to spend it all for them. Until such time that that man leaves his father and mother and goes and joins his wife and together they become one. 
Now, it leaves this question, this obvious question. If everybody is submitting, if everybody is sacrificing, then who's leading? If I'm going to give it all away, if I'm going to sacrifice everything, if I'm going, my form of submission is to sacrifice it all, well, then who's leading? God's supposed to be. Now, he may be leading through me, Dad, primarily, but there are times that God is leading my family through my wife. And I don't believe that's unbiblical in any form or fashion. Because we submit to one another. We sacrifice for one another. Because the two are one flesh together. Now, at the end of this message, I've got one last phrase written down. And I didn't know where to put it. I'm just going to share this phrase with you because I really didn't have a place to fit it in the outline. No place that fit well, but I just feel like this needs to be said. Today, in today's culture, in our society, there are all kinds of attacks on the family. Attacks from the outside and attacks from the inside. But you know what I've seen, what I've encountered over the last 30 plus years in ministry? When there are problems in the family... Most people try to jettison the family. There's a problem in my marriage. I need to find a new wife. There's a problem with my parents. I need to move out. There's a problem with my children. When there are problems with the family, Many people try to jettison the family. That is not of God. When there are problems within the family, as much as it is within our power, we've got to heal the family. The family is the foundational institution of what God wants to do here on earth. And at the core of that family relationship, is this man who's left his father and mother and this woman who has left her father and mother. And together they have come as one. One man, one woman united together in a lifelong exclusive relationship where they are called to service in the family and outside the family. 